this is the thing we've got to focus on. I was in Vanuatu recently, Henry, and um, it, it was the week that uh, Vanuatu experienced two cyclones uh, and just the devastation that was caused, uh, uh, the, the homes that were lost, the, the, the flooding, the uh, separation of families and uh, you know, people didn't, who didn't know for you know, 24 hours uh, um, uh, whether family members were well or not well, alive or dead. And uh, just the sort of back-to-back nature, just, uh, just as people were recovering from the first cyclone, here comes cyclone number two. And so, so again, it, it paints a picture of, uh, yes, uh, we know what to do, uh, we know how to do it, we could be quite effective in doing that, but we're not just doing it fast enough. Because the scientific knowledge is definitely there. Um, traditional knowledge and local knowledge is very much based on observations and observations over time. But in the Pacific, that's largely been passed down by oral history. And so it's a matter of capturing that knowledge and seeing, um, getting those observations of how things have changed into the literature. Happy noon, Olgeta. That's Papua New Guinea for good afternoon to you all. And warm Pacific uh, greetings. Welcome to another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder podcast, your guide to navigating the cross currents of security in the Blue Pacific continent. Brought to you by the Australia Pacific Security College, I'm Dr. Henry Varaturia, your host. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we broadcast from today, the Nanawal and Nambri people, and pay respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. Well, last month, the IPCC released its final report in its seven-year-long reporting cycle, delivering a final warning to the world on the severe impacts of climate change and the action that must be taken to mitigate the worst, the worst impacts. We know climate change is the single most important issue for our Blue Pacific continent. And this report provides essential insight into what is necessary to protect and prepare Pacific communities Uh, for the future. To discuss the report, I am joined by Professor Mark Howden, Vice Chair of the IPCC, Director of the ANU Institute of Climate Change, and a regular guest of this podcast. Welcome, Professor Howden. Good afternoon. I am also joined by Pasha Karatas, a review editor of the IPCC Reporting Cycle, who is joining us from the beautiful and warm islands of the, of the Cook Islands. Finally, but certainly not least, I am joined by my colleague, uh, Professor Dave Peebles, director of our Australia Pacific Security College. Let me kick off the conversation by asking Pasha, how have you seen Pacific Islanders contribute to advancing our region and our world's understanding of climate change, both within and outside the IPCC? Cool. 
outside of um, definitely it's a lot of um, contributions um, within the IPCC. It's been a little bit of a struggle, I think, to get very much Pacific representation in because uh, there's a tendency for a lot of unpublished or grey literature. And as we know, um, the, the IPCC focuses primarily on peer-reviewed academic literature. So um, it's increasing over time, but when I was first involved in the IPCCC, um, my first mitigation meeting was in Ghana and um, the year 2000, I think, that was the IPCC Working Group 3 Summary for Policymakers meeting. And I was the only Pacific Islander there, and I was um, representing the Cook Islands. And uh, there was two from the Caribbean as well, so it's not just Pacific Islands, it's small island states in general. Um, and uh, there tended to be, um, and I was one of, I think, four women delegates. <laughs> so it was um, kind of an interesting time. And things have certainly changed a lot in the 20 years since, uh, 23 years, I guess, since. Um, however, and definitely there's a lot more collaborative literature. I think that's where we're starting to see um, the, the papers being written that need to be reviewed to make it into the IPCC um, synthesis. And because the scientific knowledge is definitely there, um, traditional knowledge and local knowledge is very much based on observations and observations over time. But in the Pacific, that's largely being passed down by oral history. And so it's a matter of capturing that knowledge and seeing um, getting those observations of how things have changed into the literature that can then be reviewed and assessed. So, yeah, that's a brief answer. Well, <laughs> so. Thank you, Pasha. I'll turn to uh, Dave. This report explicitly mentions the need for multilateral efforts to combat climate change. What role do you see the Pacific region, especially the Pacific Islands Forum, playing in advancing the climate action called for in this report? Well, thank you, Tomas, uh, Henry, and a uh, big hello to all our listeners and viewers out there. Uh, may I say it's very humbling to uh, be here today because, uh, uh, firstly, uh, I, w I want to tell everyone that Henry is actually uh, a professional radio host in an earlier part of his life. Uh, uh, so I am very much playing Robin to his Batman uh, today. And uh, you can tell by his uh, his voice and his professionalism that Henry knows what he's doing. And I, I, I'm just here as a guest. Uh, I'm also, so I'm always humble to humble to hang out with Henry, but um, uh, to, to, to be with uh, Mark and Pasha today is, is, is really a great honour because, um, uh, you know, when I think about uh, the, the global experts and uh, uh, the people that have really made an impact, uh, I, I think feel very privileged to be with uh, both of them uh, today. So uh, thank you, Henry, for bringing us all together. Um, I think in terms of the Pacific Islands Forum, uh, throughout the forum's history, it's always had a very strong focus on environmental issues and climate change issues. And, and 
given the history of the region, um, uh, given the fact that the uh, Pacific is very much on the front line of climate change, um, you know, I, I think the forum has had this uh, global leading uh, role in uh, uh, advocating for environmental issues and climate change issues. And I think if you look at the uh, more uh, recent um, security statements and declarations from the forum, uh, certainly those statements uh, make it very clear that uh, climate change is the single greatest threat to the region. And um, that, that, that's uh, uh, set out in the, the key forum document, the, the 2050 strategy for the Blue Pacific Continent, that you know, th this is the thing we've got to focus on. I was in Vanuatu recently, Henry, and um, it, it was the week that uh, Vanuatu experienced two cyclones uh, and just the devastation that was caused, um, uh, the, the homes that were lost, the, 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 the flooding, the uh, separation of families and uh, you know, people who didn't know for you know, 24 hours uh, um, uh, whether family members were well or not well, alive or dead. And uh, just the sort of back-to-back -back nature, just, uh, just as people were recovering from the first cyclone, here comes cyclone number two. And I think it really um, speaks to um, uh, things that are in the global reports, but also uh, the Pacific uh, Forum's own documents uh, uh, about the intensity and frequency of weather events, in uh, these extreme weather events um, uh, really impacting on Forum Island countries. I think the forum, uh, uh, as an organisation and also the individual forum members, have, in my view, played a tremendous role at the global uh, level and I think have um, shown immense global uh, moral leadership on the uh, issue of climate change. And I think what's going to be interesting in um, uh, the next few years is if um, uh, Australia with Pacific Island countries uh, co-host uh, a conference of the parties, uh, I think that's going to be a really important opportunity for the Pacific Islands Forum to, 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 to really reflect on and bring the Pacific uh, Islands um, experience to the rest of the world. The Australia Pacific Security College aims to strengthen our Blue Pacific continent through learning, policy engagement and regional collaboration. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn and find our library of research, blogs, podcasts and videos on our website, pacificsecurity.net. Our podcast, The Pacific Wayfinder, brings together leading voices on our shared security challenges. Stay up to date on the latest thinking on Pacific security and subscribe to The Pacific Wayfinder wherever you get your podcasts. Can I turn to Professor Howe? Humble to be with you, sir. Humble to be with you. Um, but uh, reflecting on all your work over the last few years, um, what are the key scientific findings that have been synthesised in this latest IPCC report and the trajectory from here? Mm. Well, well, thanks very much, David, and, and thanks to Henry and to, to Pasha for participating in this. It's, it's great to be here. So if, if I had to sort of summarise the report, it was, it was really that uh, the synthesis report strongly confirms uh, the information uh, which has been provided by the science community and by other communities, policy communities and um, uh, those who hold traditional local knowledge and others. And that is that the world is changing and it's changing very fast. In fact, so what this report says is that um, 
uh, it's very clear that humans are causing climate change and that climate change is now impacting effectively on every ocean, on every continent, on every island system across the globe. And those impacts are net negative. So on average, they're negative. There are some positive examples, but mostly negative. And they're surprisingly large at this point in time, so at 1.1 degrees above pre-industrial. There's also good evidence that uh, people are starting to adapt to these changes. So mm. they're not just sitting there and waiting. They're actually mm. starting to respond to the changes that they're seeing. And and what this report identifies is that, yes, there is significant adaptation, but it's not happening fast enough or at scale to the extent that it needs to be to offset the changes we're already seeing. So there is an adaptation gap which is growing, which is reported here in the synthesis report. It also um, importantly identifies that as climate change progresses, our existing adaptation responses will become less and less effective um, as temperatures goes up and as sea level goes up. And so, so that adaptation gap is likely to grow. So we need to be paying particular attention to closing that gap and putting in place all of the different mechanisms, the uh, scientific, institutional, um, capacity building mechanisms that enable us to close that gap, including finance. And on the emission reduction side, it actually again shows that there's very substantial activity happening. So uh, emissions on a year-by-year -year basis are several billion tonnes lower than the, what they would have been in the absence of mitigation activities. So, so there is good news there. But the bad news is that our emissions continue to go up. And so they've been record levels in the last couple of years. Um, so record post-COVID uh, and then last year was a record level as well. And, and that is, uh, is driving up our greenhouse gas concentrations and driving climate change. Uh, the good news story again in relation to emission reduction is uh, the synthesis report assesses that there are many, many different options to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And roughly speaking, we could make a 50% cut in greenhouse gas emissions right now with the technologies and the institutional arrangements we have at relatively modest costs, um, so well below 100 US dollars, um, and often in negative territory. So we actually make make money out of of uh, reducing emissions. Um, and so, so again, it, it paints a picture of uh, yes, uh, we know what to do, uh, we know how to do it. We could be quite effective in doing that, but we're not just doing it fast enough. Thank you, Professor Howden. Just want to take a step backwards and to ask yourself and uh, Pasha. Um, um, how you played a role in uh, putting this report together. Um, would would like to our audience to know, I mean, both of you have played a significant role, but what role did you play in making sure that report came together? If you can, if you can both uh, just share with the audience uh, your role in this regard. Yep. Shall I, shall I get you going first, Professor, and then we'll, we'll ask our Pasha to, yeah. Sure. Um, so, so thanks for that. So the synthesis report is an un unusual report in an IPCC cycle. So it's actually the responsibility of the chair uh, to actually run the synthesis report. And, uh, and and as a vice chair, I actually sit under a working group. And so, um, so there's a, a couple of layers between me and the chair who actually runs the synthesis report. Um, my role specifically in the synthesis report has been I was involved in the scoping process. Um, I was uh, involved in uh, you know developing uh, some of the original ideas uh, through that scoping process and the approval process. Uh, and then I was a review editor on the summary for policymakers for the uh, synthesis report. 
and and in the approval session, I participated, uh, um, including through um, you know sort of uh, trying to get uh, contact groups and and what we call huddles, which are small negotiations, uh, effectively resolved so that the the text could be uh, locked in and we could progress uh, with the report. So so I had a range of different roles. Some of those were more on the scientific side, and some were more in the sort of negotiating space. And in and in the role, did you find it difficult? You know, were there you know challenges on on the finding itself? Were there negotiations that you have to play to get the text in place, or was it smooth sailing? You know? uh, definitely not smooth sailing. Um, so, so uh, th there were a couple of uh, smooth patches. Yep. So, so there was one figure uh, there, which was um, the sort of climate science figure, which got through. In record time, so so there was actually no significant government comments about the figure, so it got approved very quickly, and and, and that that was wonderful to see. Um, however, for most other things, there was uh, significant um, uh, negotiation over the the nature of the text, um, and that you know ranged from relatively minor differences to very major differences in in perspectives from different countries. And so, um, so particularly around things like uh, uh, finance and how finance was being treated in the synthesis report was one, was one of those friction points. Yeah, I I know it took over seven years to to culminate to this report. So, what was involved in you know collecting the information and putting this report together over the seven years? So, so the synthesis report brings together the six other reports in the cycle. So there was three special reports. There was the 1.5 degrees report, mm. uh, the land report, the oceans report, and then the three large assessment reports, the climate science, the impacts and adaptation, and the emission reduction reports. And the synthesis report is uh, aimed at bringing together the core messages from across those different six different reports and putting them into a more concise format. So... Uh, um, you know, more pithy, uh, more condensed format, and where possible to actually do a synthesis. So it's actually bringing material in from those reports, those different reports, and splicing it together so that the sum is greater than the you know, the parts that are made. Pasha. Yes. <laughs> Can I ask you to share your 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 experience on your role in putting this report together? Yes. Well, I had a very small role, well, relatively small. I was a review editor for just one key chapter. And in that chapter, I, um, as a review editor, as one of two, and it was very interesting. It was the chapter on international cooperation and working group three. Um, I certainly didn't have the breadth of experience that um, Dave did. <laughs> um, and, uh, but it was, uh, in the past, I'd been a government expert reviewer in some of those other roles um, when I was working for the Cook Island government, but this time it was um, mostly looking at um, making sure that the comments from expert reviewers and from governments and were actually addressed properly in the preparation process of the of the chapter report uh, lots of bedtime reading and lots of um, very obscure our zoom conferences because there was over 20 chapters uh, 20 authors on that particular chapter and um, all in different time zones and over a three-year period we were um, going through the 
the, the iterations of the chapter and um, and having meetings where there was negotiations about what was in and what was out, a little bit about that. And it was all very difficult during COVID um, because, and that actually delayed the overall report by I think at least one or two years. Um, so uh, my role was to, to report back on how the, um, authors were considering each other, considering the material and considering the review editor to comments. And there were, um, so I think it is safe to say that things were left out of the text that were on more on the controversial side. Um, there was, um, uh, even though mitigation perhaps means lack of mitigation, uh, lack of emissions reduction will definitely mean that there are severe loss and damages, um, particularly for Pacific Islands and um, basically everybody around the world, but um, us being on the front lines. Um, but that linkage, even in a chapter on international cooperation, was very difficult to make um, the way that the author, some of the authors would have liked to have made it and the way that some of the authors didn't want to make it. So um, it was very interesting to see that process. And um, I guess my role was just to make sure that uh, where the comments were coming in, uh, that they were recognized. I mean, there was a lot of con comments on the scientific thing, proposals of new materials, which is another way that Pacific Islands um, can get materials introduced, maybe even once the chapter's drafted. There was a lot of, because um, there's a cutoff and then a extended cutoff for the literature to come in. So I think that was very important to see that process. And I hope that in future, myself and other people with Pacific perspectives would be able to introduce um, more of the literature that's coming out of the area and um, on those areas that um, Dave talked about where the, the adaptation gap is growing, there's um, there's a need to look at new areas, um, which I'm sure we'll turn to, um, such as marine transport mitigation, um, which hasn't really been touched yet, I don't think, and um, other things like that. Sounds like a very thorough uh, process for the integrity of the report. Um, it's a very challenging work. Um, uh, trying to, you know, because the world is looking at this report, everyone is going to be reading this report. I remember uh, Professor Howden when you were presenting on the impact of climate change um, on for Kiribati. I remember you saying that the impact on freshwater will be severe, that small island states will have water security issues, sea level will rise, there will be more stronger cyclones, there will be increased wave energy, there will be increased storm surges. And um, my question is, from this report, are, are those observations that you made, uh, are they going to be more severe or are they you know, going to be more problematic? I mean, severe or problematic for this part of the region? Um, uh, th thanks, Henry. And just um, before I go into that, just, just your comment about how 
thorough this process is yeah. and, and following up on what Pasha said yeah. is that, uh, you know, my, my assessment of this is the IPCC documents actually are the most reviewed documents right. in the history of humankind. If you actually look at the yep. the, the sort of levels of review yep. uh, in a, by the science community, by governments, yep. by others, um, the, and the fact that the summary for policymakers is approved word by word and line right. by line uh, right. by the governments of the world, um, there is no equivalent uh, yeah. of, in terms of the thoroughness at which people actually trawl through this and make sure that you know all of the I's are dotted and the T's yeah. crossed. And so, so it is an extraordinary process that we've gone through, and uh, and one which I think is really important to actually provide the best information we can to uh, the policymakers that uh, the, the report's intended for. Yeah. So, when it comes to those uh, those uh, extreme events and, and problematic. Uh, sort of changes that you've just identified, Henry. Uh, the, the the core message coming from this report, I would say, uh, in in relation to that, is um, the more we understand the nature of climate change, uh, the more concerned we should be about the consequences, because because uh, the levels of impact keep on going up. They right. don't come down uh, with increased yeah. understanding but also with our increased greenhouse gas emissions. So we haven't taken our foot off the accelerator in the last 20 years or so, right. you know, like we've kept it pretty much um, pushing down hard. And and so um, so a combination of uh, the fact that we've, uh, you know, continued to generate more climate change um, and the fact that we, our understanding as we get into more depth, we see more and more problematic consequences of climate change. Uh, I think uh, adds up to a a worsening picture, um, and in particular, we in the IPCC we have things called burning embers diagrams. They're essentially risk diagrams, and uh, and uh, just a couple of years ago, I put together an analysis of this, which included a historical assessment of of how we assessed risk at different times. So the burning embers go back to the third assessment, so that's you know close to twenty years ago, and. Um, and so when we actually look at this is that across multiple IPCC uh, reports, our assessed risk at any temperature increases. So, so you know, the, the red bars of those yeah. diagrams keep on coming further and further down. Right. And, uh, and, and in fact, the extent that we had to introduce a completely new category a few years ago, which was essentially uh, the uh, sort of unmanageable and irreversible category of risk, um, which we had previously didn't have because right. the literature was actually now showing there were unmanageable and irreversible impacts yeah. of climate change. So so when we actually look at that um, evolution of risk, uh, it's, it's not only likely to get worse as climate change progresses, which of course is under our control. You know, we can go on a low emission scenario or yeah. keep on a fairly high emission scenario. Um, but it's also um, a factor of as our knowledge increases, um, our levels of concern rise because of our understanding um, has actually revealed new issues. And, and just one example of that, of course, is what's going on with um, breakdown of the big ice sheets in, in uh, both in um, Greenland but also Antarctica. Um, and they're giving rise to further and further concerns because they're happening quicker and quicker than we thought. So to reverse this trend, this trajectory that we are progressing towards, what what should the world really be doing? What should we, the political leaders should be doing now? Um, reducing greenhouse gas emissions as fast as we can. Right. And so uh, very clear, there's a, a very direct relationship between our emissions of greenhouse gases and temperature. Right. And so uh, the only way we can actually put a, 
uh, a stop to increased temperature rise is by reducing our carbon dioxide levels to net zero right. and, and doing that very quickly. Um, and at the same time, reducing emissions of other greenhouse gases to very substantially between 30 and 60%. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's the only way we can stop climate change. Um, uh, and, and that's the core thing. But in the process, of course, uh, we've already, we're already suffering climate change um, and we're likely to suffer more regardless of how quickly we reduce emissions, uh, which means we also at the same time have to adapt to climate change. So we, we have to chew gum and walk at the same time. For the latest analysis on climate, environmental, human and national security trends in our Blue Pacific region, you can read the APSC blog at pacificsecurity.net. Our contributors come from across the region and include policymakers, practitioners and academics. If you would like to contribute, get in contact with our team through our website. If I may, Henry... Uh... Just following on, uh, Professor Howden, from your comments, could, could I ask Pasha and uh, also Professor Howden, uh, 1.5 degrees yes. above pre-industrial levels. Um, the Pacific has been very clear for a long time that um, uh, for the uh, survival of some states, uh, certainly to um, um, uh, keep adaptation to somewhat manageable levels, that 1.5 degree target is... Um, really important. I think this latest report shows that um, uh, 1.5 is going to be exceeded in the not too distant future. Um, I'll just be interested to hear from hearing from both of you, what, what, what are the um, immediate realistic steps that could be taken to keep 1.5 degrees in, um, uh, in sight? Perhaps, Pasha, first uh, from your experience. I think... Um... It's an interesting question for the Pacific because one of the key sectors that we're responsible for is um, transport. Uh, that uh, we that's really where you could say that our emissions comes from. Um, and there is technologies out there that can help with that. Um, and I think so. We need to start getting. Um, deploying all these technologies at scale that we already have in place. We do, as said by Dave before, we do know largely what to do. Um, there's a lot of emphasis on carbon capture and storage and um, in from coming from, I'd say, more developed countries. I mean, that's something that we'd never even be possible to do anywhere in the Pacific, I don't think. Um, maybe in Australia, if you consider that. Um, but uh, so that's not necessarily the solution right now. Um, I think, uh, yeah, it's just basically deploying, uh, scaling up what we already have as fast as possible. And, um, and we're still hoping, I think, as the Pacific region, that um, we can do this in time to not exceed uh, 1.5 by too much, um, because that is just, it's already hard to cope with the impacts that we're seeing right now. As you mentioned, two cyclones in a week in Vanuatu. Um, there's, um, yeah, it's just uh, a, a huge challenge that faces us. Um, but we, at the same time, we cannot um, abandon the adaptation measures that we're doing. Um, and what we've seen in the past is that choices made 
15 or 20 years ago have longer term commitments when you're doing infrastructure development, um, what you're planning for the future, all of our 2050 development strategies um, really need to take into account climate change better still and um, start to channel investment into um, the alternative technologies that can help. Um, and and also to put pressure on the world uh, to uh, take action, basically, yeah. Professor Adam, could I turn to you? Is 1.5 degrees still realistic? And if yes, what, what do we do? Look, uh, the way I'd put it is that there's an extremely narrow pathway to, to keeping to 1.5, um, and, and that's both in you know, extraordinarily rapid and deep cuts to greenhouse gas emissions, plus we have to be on the lower end of the climate sensitivity sort of uh, uh, scale uh, to actually keep to 1.5. Uh, what the report shows is, uh, as you mentioned, David, is that um, uh, we're likely to get to 1.5 uh, sometime in the early 2030s and, and maybe a little earlier than that uh, and maybe a little later. Uh, but uh, But then... Uh, unless we have very rapid and deep cuts, we're going to exceed 1.5. The question is how much we exceed 1.5. Is it a very small and temporary uh, you know, ex exceedance or, or is that much longer term and more substantial? And, uh, and that really depends on how much we reduce our emissions. So the uh, synthesis report did actually uh, provide a, an assessment of what those emission reductions look like. Um, so for a 50-50 chance of... Uh, staying to 1.5, we have to reduce our emissions by 43% against a 2019 baseline by 2030, um, and a 60% reduction by 2035. Um, and so, and then, and then going to net zero for carbon fairly quickly after that. So, so that's what we have to do. And uh, you know, if you actually just reflect on the on the news in, over the last couple of days um, in Australia. Uh, with the safeguard mechanism, uh, yep, we've got we've started to have those sorts of emission reductions, you know, that sort of degree and, and uh, rate of emission reductions uh, in that component of our our emissions profile. But that's only thirty percent of Australians' emissions profile, uh, so it leaves essentially seventy percent, you know, uncovered by that particular mechanism. So um, as as Australia as a as a um, uh, you know, an indicator. Uh, we, we're not um, on track to to meeting those forty three percent reductions against two thousand and nineteen, because uh, our current commitments are against two thousand and five baseline, which so it makes an easier task. Uh, and so, so we, we we do have to go harder if we're to keep temperatures to one point five. So. What do Pacific Islanders now need to do? To prepare themselves, what steps should they now do if, 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 if we are in a situation where we won't be able to meet this 1.5 track, uh, 1.5 uh, degrees Celsius? What what must Pacific Islands now prepare for going forward? Yeah, it's um, a, a real uh, important. Uh, you know, question and one which I think Pasha is is, is best placed as as a, someone who lives in the island. I, I can say what the science says, yeah. um, uh, and that is that um, really important to keep the pressure up to keep temperatures down as low as possible. Um, so so there's a, a political 
and and a moral sort of uh, dimension to yeah. that. Um, uh, in in terms of uh, reducing emissions, as as Pasha has said, is that uh, Pacific Islands generally don't produce a lot of the green, greenhouse gas emissions, and there are now emerging alternative uh, uh, options, much lower emission options for. Uh, um, ocean-based transport, um, and and so those include uh, sort of modern sailing ships. They include shifting to renewable methanol um, and possibly ammonia in some circumstances uh, to um, to reduce the footprint of of shipping. Uh, the uh, as as Pasha said, the the likelihood of uh, Pacific Islands being substantial emission uh, sinks, uh, you know, for carbon sequestration, uh, is probably um, being over optimistic. There's probably some small scale activities there, but but not uh, to the uh, you know extent of billions of tons that are needed to to resolve this problem. So so that's on the emission side. So just you know, like everyone, I think, um, uh, just looking at our emissions profile and trying to push that down as much as possible. Um, secondly, uh, by understanding the science and taking on board the science, it, it prepares you for what sort of emission, sorry, adaptation task is ahead. Uh, so that that's you know how to deal with the sea level rise, which is which is accelerating. So sea level rise is going up faster and faster over time, and so. Uh, so we need to look at what the um, the sea level rise scenarios are um, because they're being updated on a fairly regular basis, and they also tend to be getting worse and worse over time. And uh, uh, and looking at how climate change is likely to affect extreme events and similar things, so doing things, for example, like um, effective building uh, codes and materials so that you have houses which are able to survive. A significant cyclone, um, uh, ensuring that uh, um, vulnerable uh, villages in a close to sea level um, are actually, um, you know, relocated in some cases to to better places, uh, putting in place the um, sometimes the the hard, uh, you know, coastal protection um, that uh, you know protects you know high value areas such as um, cities, etc. Um, getting people aware of the things that they can do uh, to protect themselves um, in the face of extreme events. And, and there's a whole series of things there. Really important, though, to recognise that um, this is the task of all of us, You know, whether it's emission reduction or adaptation. It's not just about governments, um, nor is it just about individuals and communities. It actually should be a collaboration between uh, different parts of our society working together um, in one direction. Yeah, no, I'd wholeheartedly agree with everything that you just said, Dave. I work um, currently, I'm involved in a project at a sub-national level looking at um, policies. And I just came back from a regional meeting in Palau of, um, it was basically the sharing lessons learned about uh, efforts in scaling up adaptation in the Pacific. And that came through so clearly. I mean, sometimes it's, it's, small, relatively inexpensive activities such as in Palau, um, they've had huge benefits from setting up a, a community radio station, which we got to go and do a site visit at, and um, that um, was very helpful in the last few extreme events around early warnings and um, also in response to things like vector-borne disease outbreaks, just educating and um, and doing that in local languages. I mean, that's it's always so important. And sometimes with the IPCC, it's very scientific. It's a lot of jargon. Um, and governments also have their own set of jargon. Um, so it's a matter of getting the awareness raising out into the, the local languages and 
carried by local champions. I think that's also very important um, uh, to to um, help uh, learn about what options are there. I think there's a lot of room for cooperation between Pacific Islands in terms of um, one example, water security. I've worked in two different um, regions, the North Pacific region and the South Pacific region on slightly different water security projects. But the thing about water security is it has been an issue for Atoll Islands for the longest time um, because they don't have very big aquifers and um, groundwater lenses under the ground. And now that is under such threat because of sea level rise. So even their growing areas are under threat. Um, but so there are some technologies out there, such as desalinization, but they're very expensive, very difficult to maintain and run. And so right now, I would say the capacity isn't there in a lot of um, more remote atolls and things. So what are they going to do about their water? For the moment, it's water tanks, but um, development partners don't necessarily like water tanks and even uh, communities because they have their own flaws um, and they only last about 15 to 20 years. So we're going to have to think in the face of changing rainfall patterns and the uh, face of saltwater intrusion into people's groundwater, uh, what are some, how are we going to sustain these solutions? Even if they are shorter term solutions, how can we renew them and recycle them. And that's going to happen across the Pacific. But what are some of the lessons being learned? How can we share them? And how can we just get things happening on the ground sooner rather than later so that we don't face real, real tragedies, I think it would be the word. There was a drought in the Marshall Islands um, around 2014. People actually died because they didn't have um, access to fresh water in time. And there was a combination of factors that contributed to that. So, um, and that's in the 21st century. So, um, you know, wouldn't expect that to be happening so recently. And um, yeah, so there's a lot of work to be done. And I just think it really needs to be done. <laughs> um, and it's good that we're having these conversations and uh, that the IPCC is bringing such attention to it. But I think until you've been to some of these places, maybe it's very hard to imagine if you're sitting in an air conditioned building somewhere, <laughs> having, you know, um, not having any water issues that you know of yet. Pasha raised a really important point, and that's uh, translation of uh, the often jargon-loaded IPCC and, and very dense sort of information in, in products such as the IPCC into something that people can understand. And so um, uh, in, in a fortnight's time, we're actually going to uh, Nandi uh, in Fiji. We've got a, um, a sort of a public event there and also a policy roundtable. Uh, and, and one of the things we're launching there are the IPCC fact sheets. So these are um, fact sheets which actually simplify the IPCC into much more understandable language, um, uh, and they're translated into five different languages which are appropriate across the Pacific. So, so we're actually trying to do that translation uh, both into simple language but also into the language that people actually use. Yes, because it's a very complex scientific report. The average Pacific Islander wouldn't really understand it unless it is explained in very simple terms for them to understand, yeah? I think that's drawing us to the end. Um, but I mean, just before we go to the to finish where I conclude, I want to ask you, what is the next step for IPP? 
the IP, P, IPCC, you know, going forward with climate change? What's going, what's next after this? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, uh, it's continuing to uh, brief people um, uh, about what we've just done. So the synthesis report and the underlying material that, that supports that. Uh, and so that's uh, briefing governments and communities and others, uh, in, including that uh, Pacific event in a fortnight. Um, but the next official IPCC uh, event is the elections, which happen in uh, Kenya in at the end of July. And so that's uh, the existing chair and co-chairs, etc. They they finish their term and there's the elections for new chairs and co-chairs, etc. So that's the, the next big step. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Howden, but, uh, uh, our friend from uh, Cook Islands, uh, Pasha, for your insights, and Professor Dave Pibbles uh, for your contributions to this conversation um, I'd like to thank you all for uh, joining me in this uh, in this uh, in this podcast and uh, to our audience for tuning in for another Pacific Wayfinder episode your guide to navigating the cross currents of security in the blue Pacific continent Malo. thank you thank you